Welcome to the Daikaiju Network presents Toku Zone. I am your co-host, Kenton. With me is your Jason, co-host. what's going on, everyone? This episode, we are continuing our coverage of Johnny Sacco and his flying robot. This particular episode, we are covering episodes 14 through 16, and as a result, we are beginning to cover the second half of this relatively short series as a 26 episode series for those who may not be familiar but before we get on with news and all that jason little house yes just uh some of the things that we usually do around here uh before we get into any of the news uh just want to make a quick shout out to both our audio podcast networks and as well as our streaming networks uh streaming networks obviously youtube twitch Facebook Live, Periscope, which we're now finally back on after a couple of fixes, and then as well as DLive and our audio podcast network, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts. I'll need to be updating the graphic soon for that. Uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and as well as TuneIn. And as far as social media, you can like and subscribe to us at these following social um, media websites. Just search for Daikaiju Network, and as well as you can follow us at our own website at daikaijunetwork.com. And uh, a place I've been having trouble logging <laughs> into for some reason. Well, it should be the uh, the actual link because I never had a hard time. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I kept it on a notepad. Um, deal like i had told you and it kept saying nope can't go yeah. in so i've been wanting to write some things there anywho as far as the news that we've got today um some of you might have noticed the announcement from mill creek entertainment as you can see off to um the right of the screen here that uh they're gonna be releasing ultraman taro here uh on uh, January 12th of next year and as you can see here on Amazon you got the pre-ordering going on right now the uh, the regular uh, blu-ray set six six discs uh, is going to be going for uh, $46 and as well if if you want to go the uh, the steel book version which has uh a little booklet just uh, behind the scenes of the series itself, which I've been mainly getting those, and I think those are pretty good sets in their own right. Some of those booklets I have found out from some people, though, unfortunately, have some inaccuracies in them. And as far as the steel book here, uh, you can see it's going for uh, 56 bucks right now. So uh, there you go. And... Uh, just make sure if if you're a uh, collector of the Ultraman series, uh, you can uh, definitely pre-order this right now. And um, I want to say something here first about this set. I don't know if you're going to move on from this, but um, I don't know about the steel books because I don't buy them. But I know if you go back to the non-steel book version, um, do not be intimidated by the prices. Um, because what has happened, I have purchased every Mill Creek Ultraman thing other than Ultra Q and the original. Um, no, I, I 
did purchase Ultraman, but I didn't purchase Ultra Q or Ultra Seven because I already had two good copy, uh, a good copy of each of those. Do not be intimidated by the price because those typically come down if you buy them from Amazon, anyways. Typically come down anywhere between. 10 to 13 dollars so you're gonna be paying more likely around the realm of like maybe 31 to 35 dollars so just kind of let everyone know yes it seems expensive even if that was the original price it's still pretty good um but what i found out through my experience buying these non-steel book sets is that they usually come down in price by like 10 bucks on average Mm -hmm. so just wanted to let everyone know about that, and you won't see that till about the time they're getting ready to ship. Yeah, those. and I know I need to uh, get around to buying a couple of the sets. I think I've got uh, three, uh, three of them so far, so I need to get uh, the fourth and fifth one of. I've purchased all the, of the series. I've, I've got all. And then, of, those. of course, I need to get uh, some of the newer ones too that has both the series and the movie. Uh, come along with it. I've got all it. those so far. <laughs> but um, anywho, that's uh, basically it for this one. And uh, before we sort of get to the bigger news, I just want to make a quick shout out that uh, coming at around 4 o'clock tomorrow morning, the official Subaraya uh, YouTube channel is going to be premiering episode 19 of Ultra Q. Uh so if if you're a Ultra Q fan or like the Twilight Zone, obviously just like Kent here, they're going to be premiering uh, the very first uh, one of the episodes to the very first series of the whole entire Ultra Man franchise or the Ultra franchise. Spectacular series. <laughs> so with that, um, here is one of the big news that. Uh, Kent wants to point out that if you did not get the the big booklet of the Arrow uh, Gamera series um, DVD or Blu-ray set, this is your chance to get at least uh, the Showa uh, set and or the Heisei set individually. So Kent, take it off. Yeah. Yeah, the big book set that came out here late July, to my knowledge, is no longer available. I don't think Arrow is even producing it anymore. My understanding is that with Gamera now, they are producing these individual era sets. So here, like in this picture that we see here, you have the Showa era um set right here. This is in general what it's going to look like. It's going to come in a box set. The Heisei era is going to come in a similar set, obviously smaller, and that's going to include not only the 90s films, but also 2006's Gamera the Brave. Also, if you're a person who loves steelbooks, you like to collect the steelbook versions of films or sets, um, they are producing a, a steelbook collection for only the 90s Gamera trilogy, which is shown mm-hmm. right here. Um, you see all three films there, and it comes in a set there. So, Including Gamera um, the Brave, obviously. I don't think Gamera the Brave's in that Well, it shows book. here uh, Gamera the Brave right there, right in very front. I, I'm waiting for it to show up here on YouTube, and there's always a delay here. I'm seeing the Heisei box set here. I'm waiting for the Steel Book. Pop up here. Well, no. Uh, well, it shows it right there for the Heisei thing right there. 
Yes, that's what oh. I said earlier. I said for the box set of Heisei, yes, it comes with the 2006. The steel book, though, is only the 90s films. Okay, um, bring this up right there. Yeah, the steel book just only comes with the three there. Yes, so. that's what I, okay, I was gotcha. saying. That, yeah, Heisei comes with the four later films. Steel book comes with only Guardian of the Universe, Legion, and Iris. So there you go. I, I know that set has been incredibly popular, rightfully so. We covered it here uh, like in August, I believe it was, early August. I talked a little bit about that. Phenomenal set. Um, I'm assuming all the Blu-ray extras that were on the set that I and a number of other people got will also be available on these. I don't see why not. The unfortunate thing, though, is that I do not believe the comic book – collection nor the information book is included with any of these box sets i don't think that's true i have not seen or read anything that says about those two books being included so i think if that's the case unfortunately you're going to miss out on that unless you're willing to spend decent change on the one big collection but Otherwise, you should get everything else, you know, with the wonderful extras and, and all that stuff. Plus, I like a lot of this art here. Um, the individual art of, of the um, films here, really phenomenal. I, I just – I love that. There's a part of me that wants to repurchase this just for the art on cases. I'm not going to do that, but um, it's just – it's beautiful. Yeah. But yeah your chance to finally if you missed out on these wonderful transfers with phenomenal extras they're releasing them but in separate sets yeah the one thing that um i probably would at least say that if when it comes to these uh separate individual sets i don't even think that they would take the time to do the comic and the, the actual booklet for so. each of these two uh, individual sets themselves. It would just only be for that big booklet set that. Well, well, yeah, and, and part of it was because that was like their big sort of a quote unquote grand opening of sorts for that set, for that collection. Because uh, to my knowledge, Arrow Video never had the license for Gamera before and they wanted to do it right. So they had this big uh, set, not to mention if they did have it. It pro those probably would show up in these photos, I would think, if, if those were included. They're not there, and like I said earlier, I have not read anything else that mentioned those books. And so sadly, I think um, those will not be included this time. But still, these are still phenomenal sets. If you still missed out, yeah, it's a bummer you missed out on the books. But these are still wonderful. Like the commentaries, I mean, it's, it's still very much worth your time mm -hmm. and money. Definitely. So um, with that, I'm not sure if uh, – wasn't there a specific release date for these individual sets coming out? My understanding is that there is not a mention yet. Uh, if I had to take a guess, it's going to be the first part of next year within the first two or three months if I had to okay. guess. Because typically with this stuff like what we just saw with Ultraman Taro, you're usually having to wait a couple of months mm -hmm. at least. So that's my guess. We probably aren't going to see this till sometime between January and March is my okay. guess. Unless someone else knows something else out there that I don't, but I didn't see a release date. Okay. All right. So with that, um, just got a few more tidbit 
lots of news here. And as you can see on the screen here, there's a second trailer to uh, the upcoming Ultra Galaxy fight, The Absolute Conspiracy, uh, which is going to be premiering on the 22nd of next month on Super Riot Productions' official YouTube channel, I think, as a way to celebrate... I think there are one millionth uh, subscriber. Um, I think that was the reason why that they're doing this uh, special on YouTube. I, I think it's not going to be uh, premiering on any of the Japanese TVs so just for YouTube uh, itself. So I would take a, a quick gander uh, at the trailer there if you have, uh, whenever you have the chance there. Uh, let's just read um, a little bit of uh, of the news here, uh, talking about uh, Ultra Galaxy Fight, the absolute conspiracy. Um, let's see here. In the series, familiar Ultra heroes from multiple generations throughout the universe must join the battle one after another in in an ensemble piece that features everything fans could have dreamed of. That dream is now reality, with a three-arc story spinning a tale across the ages, even linking up with Ultraman Z, uh, the new series, by the way, uh, which is currently airing to rave reviews. Uh, set to the fast-paced, thrilling theme song, Zero to Infinity, by Mamoru uh, Miyano, uh, the latest trailer includes new information that holds the key to the story and, veal, and reveals a series of additional characters that will be appearing in the series. Ultra Galaxy Fight the Absolute Conspiracy will begin on Sunday, November 22nd, uh, with new installments planned to release on YouTube each week at 10 a.m. Japan Standard Time Worldwide. So... Um, with that, I'm guessing you don't have uh, anything uh, to go on that. If not, I can move on to the next piece of news here. Um, and this one, some of you might have heard, uh, the Override video game uh, that was released on to um, some of these related... Uh, just hold on <laughs> on the uh, the uh, like on Nintendo Switch, PlayStation, and as well as Xbox. Well, now there's a sequel to Override uh, Super Mech League, which this one's gonna uh, feature the anime Ultraman here, and uh, I haven't really played the game. I don't know if it's really made it to the states. Uh, if it has, I haven't had the chance to actually take a look at it. But uh, from some of the things that I have uh, seen here, uh, it looks at least uh, promising to um, maybe uh, try it out before actually purchasing uh, the full thing. If there's a demo uh, version of this game out there. Um, but yeah, it's a... It's available for pre-order through Amazon. Yep. 
It's coming out December 22nd. Yeah, so it, um, from what you can see here, uh, it's going to be available on the Switch, PlayStation 4, and PlayStation 5, and as well as Xbox One. I think that is um, Xbox One. Well, it just shows the, uh, just the Xbox logo here. So I'm assuming, well, I think that's uh, Series X. So it looks like it's just going to be on the new uh, Xbox Series X uh, console there. So um, other than that, what was the thing that you, <laughs> you want to mention about? I, I just wanted to remind everybody uh, just recently, like within the last couple of weeks, um, and it may have been since the last time we podcasted that the Arrow video once again, uh, giving us fans a, a lot of goodies. They release their Blu-ray of Warning from Space. Uh, I did a micro review of that on our Facebook page, and that's because I couldn't get in our website that day. Um, so I wrote a micro review of it on our Facebook page. Um, We've talked about it a little bit on here before in the past. I don't know when the last time we had talked about it was, um, but it's it's a tokusatsu film. It's considered the first uh, Japanese science fiction film to be in color. It was made by Dai. Um, I, I would check out. I would check it out. It, it's uh, everything about the film. It's got both. <laughs> Excuse me, the Japanese and the English dub version, which was done by Titra many years ago, both films are remastered, especially the English one. Anyone who has seen the Alpha Video version uh, 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 that was released odd number of years ago knows that while it's better than nothing, that film – that copy, I should say, was – flawed. The, the colors were very faded. There were a lot of film artifacts on it, etc. Um, it wasn't the greatest copy, but it was still better than not having it. This looks very pristine. It's a wonderful transfer of this film in both the English and the Japanese one. The commentary uh, version with Stuart Galbraith IV is kind of weird, and I wrote about that um, on uh, on my micro review on our Facebook page in that the film is 87 minutes, but this commentary only goes up to 65 minutes in the film. Why that is, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. I've, that's the first time I've ever seen something like that in a movie where the commentary track just stops, you know, before the film is. And and it's a legitimate stop where you know he signs off, he thanks people that helped him with it, and then that's it. You know, that's hmm. the end of it. Um, it's still very uh, enlightening. It's still very informative. I would still check out this um, Blu-ray copy of Warning from Space. This may be a film uh, via Amazon or wherever you buy your films that could end up disappearing and it may be hard to find within the next month or two if you don't pick it up soon perhaps. Um, it's very obscure, but it's a it's a unique film. Um, I would definitely check it out. Grab a copy. There's a nice 31-page booklet uh, included as well with a lot of information on the production and all that too. So I would really pick that film up too. Yeah, and um, I know I should probably get this uh, version of the film myself because I know, and I've mentioned it before in the past, that when it comes to those alpha video films, and I know that they've released um, quite a few of the Gamera show of films out in the past, and the qualities of a lot of these films that were released by Alpha Video have not been great at all. Is the 
the the qualities of the picture and everything was just really poor and it just really turned me off from this uh those releases from alpha video and whenever i saw something new coming from them it's like i'm not gonna deal with it until someone else out there releases a better quality version of these said films and obviously we've got arrow which is becoming more and more prominent now with the release of the the whole gamera box set and then now they've uh coming out come out with this one here warning and warning from space so i definitely need to get that one but as far as some of the gamer ones i've got the mill creek entertainment ones i'm not sure if i'm gonna uh still keep those or not still uh debating on that right now I'm still keeping mine. I got rid of the Mill Creek Blu-ray ones uh, like three years ago because um, basically, the for whatever reason, their Blu-ray versions never had the English dub track on them. And I'm like, well, why am I keeping these? Because the DVD version is still, in terms of its quality with visual and, and audio, is still very sharp, still very good. It's not high def, but... So what? It's still very clear and remastered. So I got rid of those. I would still encourage you to look at the current Arrow ones just because of the extras, all the bonuses that are included um, on these discs. The commentary tracks alone, I think, are worth it. It's, I think it's still worth your time. I just have been recently, over the last couple of days, have been going back and revisiting some of these films, uh, the, the Arrow mm-hmm. ones. I mean, I love that set. It's, it's an amazing set. Uh, yeah, so... Um... Anywho, with that, I uh, just want to show just a few other things as far as SH Figure Arts revealing a few of common uh, Rider uh, figures. This one here that you see on the screen is common uh, Rider 01, uh, Realizing Hopper. Uh, from, uh, from what it's looking like here, I think the, uh, the bright yellow areas on this figure uh, I think probably uh, glow in the dark from what it looks like, according to this photo right here, off to the left there. But uh, otherwise, uh, this figure, it's it's pretty slick, pretty neat uh, compared to a lot of the SH uh, figure arts or the Tamashi Nation uh, figures, which are known to be having a lot of the figures uh, articulated in a way very detailed and comes with uh, quite a few accessories per figure um, but uh, yeah it's, it's some uh, few other uh, photos there um, don't know if you have anything to add as far as this uh, figure here but yeah at least a few different poses I mean you can see quite a bit of uh, minute uh, details that they do with these figures they are pretty neat in its own right and I think let's just go back here if they have anything as far as the price it says it's coming uh, uh, around April 2021 with the price of 3300 yen which uh, roughly translates to between maybe 32 $33 uh, uh, in US uh, currency and the pre-order is going to be uh, the sixth of next month and closing on the ninth. 
there for this figure. So if you're um, obviously a Kamen Rider fan, uh, this is definitely your chance to pre-order these uh, figures uh, when you get the chance when that uh, pre-order date arrives. And then the second Kamen Rider SH figure arts is the uh, Gryden uh, Lychee or Lychee or... Uh, don't know how to print that uh, reveal here. Um, this one's going to be released on May 2021 uh, with the price of 6380 uh, yen. And get a uh, better close-up here. This one, this one's pretty neat. It's got the nice traditional uh, look instead of that modern look that we saw on the previous figure there. Uh, yeah, got your nice reds, golds, uh, brown, definitely kind of looking like that medieval-ish type of look to these figures. Yeah, definitely pretty neat. And obviously get the sword accessory uh, right there and the hammer. So there's that. And then uh, lastly, the uh, Shinkacho uh, <laughs> Sayo Kamen Rider Black uh, figure. Um, and if I can try to find... Uh, I'm not seeing any release date here. And it's just a, a couple of figures here uh, provided from uh, someone on Facebook. There, This one's a pretty plain uh, Kamen Rider, kind of more the traditional uh, look, uh, sort of calling back to the first uh, iteration of Kamen Rider. This one's just all basically looking all black with maybe a little bit of gold trim here and there, but um, otherwise, there's really not much information on uh, this figure itself. But um, otherwise, that's uh, basically it of the news. All right. So here we go. Johnny Sacco and his Flying Robot episodes 14 through 16. So as we continue to do with all the episodes, I will give the English title of, of each episode first, followed by the Japanese, and then we pick which one we like best. So episode 14, the English title is The Monstrous Flying Jawbone. The Japanese title is The Monstrous Fangs of Iron. Jason, which one do you like better? Um, I sort of like the, uh, the Japanese one, The Monstrous uh, Fangs of Iron. The Japanese one sounds cooler, but I'm going with the English just because uh, it's more accurate in terms of what we actually get. The monstrous flying jawbone. The Japanese doesn't have the word flying in it. So, like, if you saw the monstrous fangs of iron and you saw what we saw, you might be a bit disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but oh well. Or you probably combine it a little bit, the monstrous flying jawbone of iron or some sort. That's just that's a mouthful. <laughs> the monstrous flying jawbone of iron with eyes that separate and go kaboom or something like that. <laughs> All right, so here's a plot overview of episode 14. Gargoyle is attacking the Tylon branch of Unicorn. Captain Azuma, Johnny, and Jerry investigate the attack in Tylon. Robo is ordered to stop the 
tank assault. As quickly re- quickly revealed, Fangar is leading the attack and is captured. Fangar is transported to New York by Azuma. On their way to New York, Azuma's ship is intercepted by the flying jawbone. Azuma and the Tylon commander of the Unicorn Branch are taken hostage to a secret gargoyle base in Japan. Azuma is cut free and calls Johnny and Jerry to rescue him, but they are captured themselves. Azuma and the Tylon commander are placed in chairs that, when they come together, electrocute their occupants. Johnny and Jerry get themselves free and are able to prevent the chairs from coming together just in time. Fangar releases poisonous gas while Johnny calls Robo to the base to help them escape. Robo clashes with the flying jawbone. During the battle, the top half of the jawbone is thrown into the gargoyle base, destroying it. Fangar barely escapes, and Robo takes the Tylon commander back to Tylon. So I want to say before we kind of dive into this specific episode and, and move on in general, uh, when I have memories of Johnny Sacco and his flying robot, these three episodes at least, and along with the la- last episode of the previous podcast, um, are sort of the, the episodes that I – that have events that I tend to remember most about this series because uh, as we talked about uh, ad nauseum, the series is very wacky, it's very goofy, and I feel like what we've started to enter, starting with episode 13, coming up to now, and I don't know what the next handful of episodes will bring because I don't remember all that um, – this, in my opinion, is sort of the, the gravy of the series, in my opinion. This is where the series not only becomes wackier, but I think tends to have the largest grouping of the most fun episodes. And most of my memories are of events that happen kind of within these groups of episodes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And again, Fangar, episode 14, uh, this this was a character we talked about from the very beginning when we started this toku zone series um i love this commander of gargoyle i love seeing him i we love botanist too we talked about uh, when botanist came onto the scene how much we loved him too he's been mia for a little bit now but fangar i mean this for me again any episode with fangar is an entertaining episode. and when it comes to uh, these episodes, I sort of noticed that, um, like the past few episodes, there at least has been a particular theme uh, coming together with at least a few episodes that we've uh, done per episode. Like a couple episodes ago was uh, Giant Robo just throwing a monster down and it completely dies. Uh, the previous uh, podcast episode uh, we've done was just all episodes were Marie or Marie related. And then now with this one, mm-hmm. um, it seems like there's at least a couple themes here because with these next few episodes, um, we don't even get Emperor Guillotine at all. Uh-uh. You brought up something I had in my notes. Yeah, like. We didn't. I don't think we saw him even in episode thirteen. So it's been a while. Yeah, he's been MIA for whatever yeah. reason. And the other theme that we get here is that each of these uh, three episodes that we're going to be discussing about is going to have it's uh, a different commander per episode. Whereas in this one we get Fangar, and then uh, the next two we're going to have. Uh, Two different ones per uh, 
well, a different one per each episode, but we're going to discuss those when we get to those um, episodes. But yeah, it seems like uh, as we go on, there's at least a similar theme when it comes to these uh, uh, separate episodes. Yeah, I mean, that's something I made note of, too. Yeah, that I don't know if it's going to continue as we proceed with episodes 17 through 19. We'll find out here in a few weeks. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting thing that's going on. Guillotine is, is missing and has been missing for at least another one or two episodes. And, yeah, we get different commanders, at least in this particular set. I thought it was interesting, though, that, um, you know, when Mari was contacting uh, Captain Azuma to be careful uh, when he was taking uh, Fangard to New York, that Captain Azuma was actually being an ass <laughs> to her, basically saying, you know, don't waste your time. I could take her. You know, he just was kind of yeah. being an ass. <laughs> I just kind of... <laughs> I I tur- I was turned off by that. I'm like, dude, like, sure, you may be irritated, but you're the commanding officer of this set. Like, you need to be – you need to not only set an example, but you need to just mm-hmm. not be a jerk, but, you know? <laughs> yeah, when it comes to the, the two Fangar episodes that we've seen – uh, back to back here. It seems like when it comes to the writing, whoever did the writing that involves Fangar, it seems like that they've fleshed out the story more and sort of took their time with it instead of just like um, basically adding in certain things and just isn't there. Again, it seems like they've sort of connected a lot of stories that lead up. Uh, to the final result um, in that regard. And I I really like how they've uh, done a lot of things as far as the story um, in this episode. And I've also have liked how uh, it seems like Fengar is the more, it seems like he's more competent in what he does compared to what we've seen with uh I'd say more with botanists, and especially when it comes to Harlequin that we've seen. I would argue, yeah, Fangar at this point in the series has shown to be more competent. Botanist is not too far behind. Botanist has had some successes along the way. But yeah, I would say when compared to Fangar, he may be half a step behind him. But yeah, Harlequin, for whatever reason, they just have never utilized that character to its fullest potential. Uh, Spider was unique. Uh, He infiltrated traded a couple of things like we had talked about we had that one podcast where they had what back-to-back episodes where they infiltrated unicorn bases and just how incompetent unicorn yeah. was uh with those with those two storylines um but yes i mean up to this point uh and including uh you know, with what we get with the next two commanders in these next two episodes, uh, Fangar, in my opinion, proves to be the more competent. And like you said, with the writing too, I, I do think the writing. And and again, at least with my research, I wasn't able to find out too much as far as the writing process, the development process from episodes one through twenty six, the conclusion of the series, as far as like okay, like. Were there different writers that came along at some point, or maybe was there more time given to to produce and write each episode? I'm not sure, uh, but yeah, it just seems like the storylines 
are better written now. And I would argue this particular batch of episodes that we are covering with this podcast are really some of the best written episodes we have seen thus far in the series. There have been some other ones, but they've been sporadic. Here we're getting uh, consistency with the writing. Mm-hmm. And um, and again, I'm not sure what led to that. You know, different writers or I, more time? I'm not sure, I, but – it's I assume better. it's uh, – I would say it would be different writers because when it comes to some of the previous episodes that we reviewed earlier, especially some of those that weren't really good at all or probably the lowest point of the series so far, I th- it's, it's apples and oranges night and day compared to some of the writing from those uh, past episodes from the first half. And I think with these first three episodes, uh, into the second half, I think it really sets up the second half pretty well with what we've uh, seen so far, and I think it's it's really elevating uh, the series so far in my point of view when it comes to the second half compared to the first half. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, look, this series is still goofy. Um, like, for example, here, one of the things I've written down, and maybe I missed something on this, but when Johnny and Jerry get caught and, and the commander and the Tylon unicorn commander and the chairs that are slowly coming together, um, how come Jerry didn't walk over and flip the switch? Did I miss well, he, something like where the controls? He was, chained, a, he was uh, chained up along with Johnny there by the, by the okay. feet, and then he had – like uh, okay. he was also like uh was it uh oh uh, handcuffs uh tied or cupped okay. on both of his hands that's why you right. saw that little weird way how he was throwing the rope well, and everything yeah. But I thought if he could walk, he could still, like, you know, still grab the right. switch. I just – I missed the handcuffing or tying down of the feet, But I, I would say this. Besides, the uh, like, the really good writing, I would have to say probably the one downside uh, to this particular part, and it's a good thing that you brought this entire uh, scene up here, was in this uh, same scene that when they uh, took out uh, to the – uh, gargoyle gain uh, troops here. I mean, with how slow the two electric chairs were going at one another, you would have thought that they would have gotten the key from one of these troops right away to uncuff themselves, both the legs and the feet, instead of right at the last second when these two electric chairs where Zuma and the Tylon uh, uh, commander were on, they almost... You know, touched one another, killing these two. You would have thought that they would have gotten, <laughs> found the keys from these two troops from the Gargoyle game right away. And then obviously, yeah, could have walked over, uh, deactivated the uh, electric chairs for moving there instead of having the yeah. rope, blah, blah, blah. Well, and two, um, and you, you kind of see this an awful lot like in James Bond movies, but hell, you see this in an awful lot of movies where there are villains, where the villains make dumb mistakes. Uh, like in James Bond, the notorious uh, uh, sort of things that the villains do is that they reveal their ultimate plot to Bond you know, right before they think they're going to kill him. And then as a result, when Bond escapes or whatever, Bond knows exactly what he needs to do to save the day. Um, 
or they have him captured and instead of killing him, they try to torture him or just imprison him when they could have easily put a bullet in his head and be done with it. Here, what they could have done like with the chairs, they had – was it five or six? different speeds because they showed the control board of you know the switch that they flipped that set the chairs in motion and they put it on the slowest setting and I know Fangar's whole idea was well let's make it slow so that these guys like really sweat it out like we, we want them to be terrified but at the same time it's like if your ultimate goal is to kill these people why not do it who cares if you terrorize them? You got them captured. They are going to assume anyways that you might kill them anyway. The, you know, and I'm not blaming the writing because this is what creates drama. And yes, sadly, it makes the villains come off kind of dumb. But it creates tension. It gives our heroes an opportunity to be heroic. Um I, I, I've gotten to a point in my life, I'm 36 years old and I've seen a ton of films and I've seen enough TV shows where I, I get a little – I get a little annoyed by that because I'm like, why not just go ahead and either shoot them or put it on the fastest setting and be done with it? And it's – you know, I'm a little annoyed well, by I that. Well, I probably wouldn't say that even though you know, trying to make it slow and everything, but then you've – you also have Johnny and Jerry there right away. You would have thought that they would have found the key on one of the gargoyle gains that they've knocked out, like both of them. They would have found the keys right away, uncuffed themselves, and then uh, turn off uh, the lever from there. But yet, they had to go around uh, using the rope uh, and everything and try to capture uh the lever and uh and then right at right as the uh oh uh the electric chairs are touching one another that they somehow got uh the rope around turn it off and then find the keys uh to uncuff themselves right after that you would have thought it would have been the other way around but also not using the rope to turn the lever off yeah i mean it's um it's it's all kind of annoying but at the same time though too like i've said before uh, it creates drama gives your heroes an opportunity to be heroic but also to survive obviously because you don't want the villains to win obviously and the funny thing is is that when you take a look at histories whether they're written or they're put on a screen a lot of times villains do have heroes in situations where if the villains were very serious about what they wanted to do boom that's it story over heroes dead you know the evil guys win um but um yeah it's just a little annoying it doesn't it, it it just annoys me a little bit like it's not enough to make me hate an episode or a book or whatever it may be but um it, it definitely um it just it's just kind of frustrating because you see it an awful lot and you're just kind of like Let's maybe try to do something different or, or make our heroes – like try to make the villains like, OK, we're ready to put a bullet in your head. And then the heroes on the spot come up with something. But don't come up with something that's really goofy, for example, for the heroes to get out of it. Like let's just see something different is what mm -hmm. I'm saying. But um, the flying jawbone here, um, I think it looks kind of cool with the facial features. I think it's definitely a step up from the flying hand uh, that we got like – 
four or five episodes back, but I still think on some level it's a bit hokey and uninspired. Yeah, it seems well, it seems like just the way how it looks, it's it felt like that they sort of fast paced it. Uh, in a way, and also I think they didn't really have much of anyone to play any specific monster that they probably originally had for this episode. Because from what you've seen, they they really had no one uh, playing the part as this uh, flying jawbone at all. It was just mainly a marionette just hanging on a thing of strain and then, you know, sort of separating like it. Like the claw or whatever That, that too, and then... Um, yeah, it's just it just seemed a little bit fast paced, just the way how it looks. But um, I would say, as far as the execution is uh, for this uh, particular episode, to me, I think it's a pretty unique um, design and uh, creature uh, in a way in itself, and it's it feels like that. As you mentioned with the the flying hand and then as well as we had uh, the I, – I forget the specific name. Opticon, Opticon. yeah. And so now it's like first we have the hand, the Opticon, and then now the flying jawbone. So we get like pieces of, <laughs> of certain uh, human – yeah, certain human body parts <laughs> being played as a villain for each of these episodes. Yeah, and don't don't get me wrong. By no means do I think this is great or even close to being the best in the series. Uh, in fact, I think, for example, the next episode we're going to cover, Iganog, is so much better than what we get here. But compared to something like The Flying Claw, uh, I think it's still a step up it just because there's a bit – it's more unique and um, it is something that, that just – there's more – dread i guess attached to it like when you have something that's like a flying to me that's just dumb and i talked about that before when we covered it one or two episodes back um but i i just think that this makes a bit more sense it's still a bit uninspired but i do like it i I think in many ways it puts up a better fight than than what that flying claw did oh yeah especially um um but yeah i just think i think it's just cool it's not only cooler looking. I just think it's it's a better villain than what we got with that flying claw. So out of out of all the flying uh, body parts that we've seen so far, uh, which of the three that you like best? Because but I know obviously I'm probably know which is the least like. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I've already said which one I think is the least. I mean, here – and I thought about this actually when I was watching this episode and doing my notes. Um, the This flying jawbone I think looks really cool, but I think the one that may be the, the tougher opponent might be Opticon. I think so. Just because of the, the, the abilities it had. I still think the, the overall idea of it in terms of it just being a flying eyeball was pretty stupid, but – when they gave it its powers and abilities, I thought it made it a formidable foe, despite the fact that the general idea of just a flying eyeball was stupid, mm-hmm. I thought. Yeah, I would say, for me at least, appearance, I would say the flying jawbone seems to be the coolest one out of the three. But yeah, as far as 
the toughness or formidability, I would have to go with Optagon as probably the better uh, foe out of the three uh, body parts that we've seen so far from these uh, episodes. Yeah, and you know, I was talking earlier when we were talking about story. How I was saying that even though the storytelling is better, but at the same time, these st- stories are still kind of silly. One of the f- moments that I chuckled at was when the Tylon Unicorn Commander spat this really tiny pin at one gargoyle agent and knocked him down. This was when the the Unicorn Tylon Commander was sitting in that chair, and he just somehow picks out a pin with his mouth and is able to shoot it like. I don't know, 15 or so feet across Straight. the room and get the, the guy. And it's very, t- I mean, it's very, t- I mean, I don't know. Like, and two, and two like, with the accuracy. Seen, like the, the lead for those. Yeah, that and then the fact that it's about as si- the size, if not a bit smaller than the than the lead you get for your mechanical pencils. Mm-hmm. You know, and, it's, and it took that guy out. I just thought it was really goofy. Yeah, and um, the thing too is that when you're trying to spit spit out a needle to hit one of these guys, you would think that after spitting it, that needle would just like turn like and not even probably have the like the very sharp sharp point like sticking right at the guy's neck like it did there. But somehow he had that guy has some Bruce Lee skills or something there <laughs> to make it just go straight. He's a unicorn <laughs> commander. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just uh, really unique on how he pulled something off like that. Yeah. Uh, once again, though, I was a little annoyed that, again, throwing the enemy is what ultimately stops the flying jawbone. Uh, I, my memory was that, yeah, this happened occasionally, but since we've been revisiting this series, I never realized to the extent that throwing an enemy is what, most of the time at least, is what ultimately stopped him. And I'm actually getting kind of tired of it. It's like when we covered Iron King and how, what's his name, Uh, Gotaro was the guy always saving the day and not Iron King. That changed later as that series went on. But here it's just like, once again, just throwing stuff and that's it. Or just like a few episodes ago that we've talked about where the entire theme for those few episodes uh, were, were giant robo throws the monster down and it completely uh kills the monster (laughs) yeah it's just yeah ridiculous i just hope that that's not the case going down uh throughout the rest of the series here because then if if that's i know the final episode doesn't end that way for sure yeah i know that and i hope well, a majority of them, but if it gets to that point, it's sort of, to me, it sort of downgrades the rating for the second half of of the series here. But um, we'll get to that point uh, if if these things keep on happening. Yeah. So are we ready to go into final thoughts and a rating? Uh, yeah. All right, I will go first here. Thankfully, the flying jawbone doesn't appear much during the episode. While not as ridiculous as the flying claw, it's still an uninspired design. 
nine. Much of the episode takes place in the chamber where the electric chairs are housed. While this may seem dull, having Fangar as the villain makes the story fun and entertaining. This set of episodes we're about to cover in this podcast are some of the most memorable episodes, I believe, of the series. This episode is pretty solid. Nine and a half out of ten. Taking a, a little sip here. Um, yeah, to me, this... I would say by far this is probably the most solid writing that I've seen in the entire series so far with just this uh, particular episode. And I really like how they're utilizing Fangar in these back-to-back episodes, especially this one here. And it makes them – they make them more confident in this one or competent uh, this time around where – I really like it how he captures uh, the two commanders, and as well when uh, Johnny and Jerry were trying to rescue him, they sort of, he sort of lets them come in to lure them, and then sets up a trap and captures them as well, and then uh, uh, have them witness the death of these two commanders. But then, of course, there's that at least a little downside with that scene there that we mentioned earlier that was that's the only downside that i have in this entire episode but other than that uh really good writing i really like uh the design of the flying jawbone very unique in a way um just gotta find find a unique way to get rid of these monsters instead of just throwing throwing them down and killing them off that way (laughs) but yeah I would say that out of the commander so far, I I would say they should utilize Fangar more and then have Botanist sort of come behind. And yeah, as far as Harlequin, they just, he just really has no place <laughs> really so far in the series at all. When it comes to the, like the next two, they should have utilized him more in one of these next two episodes. It would have been really nice if they did, because they had actual room (laughs) to at least put him in and to kind of give him something to do, but just haven't really utilized him. But other than that, uh, episode 14, The Monstrous Flying Jawbone, I give this one a 9 out of 10. All right. With that, nature calls. I was wondering, Lincoln, do you want to talk monsters with Uncle Jason for a bit while I use the restroom? All right. Uh, We'll be back after these messages from Lincoln. All right. I'm just often my social phone. Offer some monsters and monsters are so cool. God, yes, you're so happy. I'm just Sam and I. Sam is at Jerry's house, like over there, and we're just superhero training and monsters. Oh yeah. So out of, um, so out of all the Ultraman shows that you've seen so far, which of the Ultramans do you like best? <laughs> Um, I like the bird one because it's so cool. Like, I like the bird Ultraman Ace one because it's so cool that near literally turns into a giant bird monster. That's kind of funny. Nice. (laughs) And then I know there's a lot of monsters when it comes to the Ultraman uh, 
TV shows. Is there any particular one that you like, or do you just like all of them? I like all of them. It's it's one time. What does that one fall mean? That what does that fall mean? That is in a red dot. Uh, the little blinking light. Is that the one that you're talking about? Um, it's that phone. Right oh, there. I, uh, the phone. Uh, I'm not sure what you're. <laughs> it's on our. It's on my. It's on Dad's computer. So. Oh, you're probably looking at the uh, the little Skype thing. That's just uh, if if you want to end the call, that you just click on that and then ends the call there. And it's like I have my own computer to do my um um pre. Um, can you go in school? Yeah, wow. I hear. Hey, I heard wait. about that. <laughs> oh, okay, wow. All right, say bye. Bye. Bye, Link the Stink. <laughs> All right, you talk your ear off. <laughs> oh, a little bit. I gave him a couple questions here, <laughs> just asking him what his favorite Ultraman was, and if he had any particular monsters that he likes out of the series. Oh, what 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 was the answer to the Ultraman? Uh, he was talking more about Ace, but I think he liked the the blue one. I'm not sure. I know there's at least a few blue ones. I don't know if he was talking about Hikari or um, oh, I forget uh, Neos. Not sure what particular blue one that he likes. I think he's talk. The reason why he's talking about Ace is because that's the latest show he's been on. He hasn't watched an episode out of that in a while, but he really liked the return of Ultraman when he saw that earlier in the pandemic. Yeah, but as far um, as monsters, he just like, yeah. liked all of them. <laughs> well, of course, he's he's five. <laughs> all right, episode fifteen of Johnny Sockwin's Flying Robot. Don't touch that. <laughs> The English title is Iganog, the Iceberg Monster. The Japanese title, Eisler, the Refrigeration Monster. Jason, which one do you prefer <laughs> the most? And I think I know where you're going with this. I, I like the Japanese one more because the Iceberg Monster, it, it doesn't really fit it all that well. The refrigerator, Refrigeration Monster, yeah, that definitely fits it more because it basically freezes... Everything that it unleashes, it's uh, like the snow weapon that comes out from these hoses right next to his head of uh, of this monster. But as far as far as the specific name for this monster, ice was it Iceler for the Japanese one? It Iceland. sort of reminds me of Iceland, the country Iceland, but. Um, I think Iganog, I think fits this uh, fits this monster more. You actually didn't pick the one that I thought you would pick. Um, I'm actually going with the English one more, really? even though the ice, even though iceberg, yes, doesn't necessarily um, fit. But I think I don't like the name Iceler to start off. Yeah, with. same here. And on top of that. Uh, the refrigeration monster, I just think it's silly. <laughs> I, I just – I find that silly. And Iganog, like you, I think is a really cool name, and I also think of Eggnog. <laughs> that's, that's sort of what I get. Eggnog goes with Christmas, that's, you know? And it's, that's exactly it's sort of thing that comes into my head when I think of Iganog. Eggnog. But yeah, when it comes to Iceler, it reminds me of Iceland, the country. 
I think Isler 2 is too easy of a name to come up with for a monster like this. Um, Iganog, I think, is even more unique. It's just like I've never heard anything similar to this before or like it. And um, I, I, you know, I, I just like it a little bit more. Sure, the, the word iceberg doesn't necessarily appropriately describe the monster, but I also think it's not as hokey as the refrigeration monster. Like, still, that's that's still unique in a way instead of iceberg monster, which to me is very generic in a way. It is, but I think the phrase refrigeration the refrigeration monster, monster. Like some sort of comedic skit <laughs> <laughs> it's a giant refrigerator coming to get you it's just like that's not scary like <laughs> iceberg monsters are scary you dope <laughs> iceberg though you think is something that is big you know you it's know, it's sort of I think. Uh, funny uh seeing uh iceberg in this sort of thing because recently i've been watching a lot of uh videos pertaining to the titanic <laughs> in a way on youtube yeah but anyway here's a plot overview of iganog the refrigeration monster iceberg <laughs> The Demon's Canyon, located in a mountainous region of western Japan, houses a mysterious castle. Johnny and Jerry scout the location. However, a man dressed in black finds them and takes them to a remote cabin. He calls himself Hunter. Mr. Goldenknot, a man literally in a golden suit of armor, is behind the gargoyle the operations. <laughs> armor medieval armor gargoyle agents check out the cabin and our heroes are forced into a gunfight and chase while attempting to escape iganog shows up causing a snowstorm robo is called into action iganog success successfully freezes the giant robot jerry due to his injury ends up being captured by gargoyle azuma discovers hunter was a former unicorn agent he he looks due to his believing Azuma didn't work well with the rest of the agents, and he blames the death of a fellow agent on Azuma. Johnny goes to Goldenot's castle to try and free Jerry, but is captured himself. Hunter arrives before Jerry and Johnny are stopped, excuse me, strapped to a rocket. The rest of Unicorn arrives to help moments later. Goldenot's castle explodes, and Robo is able to finally free itself to fight Iganog. Robo's mega punch ends Iganog. Um... First off, and like I was saying earlier, just because these episodes are well-written, at least in this batch, doesn't mean that they aren't goofy. And one of the things coming out of the gate is I thought it was hilarious when Jerry says, don't worry, I won't get caught, then acts like a total noob and gets caught within seconds after saying he wouldn't get caught. And he actually says, I got caught. (laughs) Well, as far as the phrasing of that, he didn't physically get caught. He just you know, visually got caught. He got yeah. found out. Yeah. But um, the one, the one elephant in a room that I want to at least point out when it comes to uh, this neutral character uh, Hunter, uh, when he uh, sp- stumbles upon both uh, Johnny and Jerry there, and is sort of the the focal point of this episode here. Uh, the one thing that it's sort of interesting that you would have thought that Azuma would have uh, noticed this particular uh, character when he later finds out, oh, he was part of his team. 
you would have thought right then and there that he was part of the team instead of just having to go through like paperwork or uh, documents just to try to figure out who this uh, guy was. And that's that's sort of sort of the probably the only downside that I have with that sort of writing in this episode. But yeah, as far as this episode, I would say it's one of the two episodes that they could have at least utilized one of the other uh, commanders because uh, Golden Knot, as far as I know, he's just a one and done uh, uh, commander in this one. They could have at least utilized uh, Harlequin in this episode. I think he would have fit well within this one uh, here. But as far as uh, Golden Knot, it's a pretty unique uh commander in this episode even though that they've got like the castle and everything yeah it sort of fits with that whole ordeal but then again i think we don't even see him again after this one with the castle I blowing so. up. i had actually forgotten about him until yeah like, this i completely episode. forgot about him even the uh, the commander in the next episode which is a one and done one yeah, and um, Golden Knot, I think, is incredibly random. I, I think he's weird and funny at the same time. Um, he is mildly competent. I would say if I had to rank the Gargoyle commanders, he would be somewhere in the middle. Maybe in the middle slash just in the latter second half uh, of the list. Um, he's he's okay. I, I think, again, the whole idea of... Um, you know, a character in knight's armor, sure, it makes him seem invincible because he's made of armor. He's gold because that means, you know, wealth and prestige. I almost wonder, though, too, because um, this series came out. Let me do some quick research here because I think this may have come out uh, close to like- – yeah, Goldfinger had already been out like a couple years earlier. I – have suspected potentially and i can't back this up i have suspected that maybe on some level this character is a slight homage to goldfinger and his antics in that bond film james bond's brought up twice in this episode now (laughs) um but yeah i just it's he's in, in terms of his um just him being there was it necessary? No. Uh, like you said, the, they already have um, s- at least three well, and then- uh, working commanders, and they could have used at least one of them for this. Like you said, Harlequin. We haven't seen him lately. Why not have him here? That would make it interesting because you could develop a backstory that the reason why you haven't seen Harlequin the last couple of episodes is because he's had to go to this mountainous region and do this work over there. Um, It makes more sense. Instead, you bring in this random, like you said, one-and-done villain. Um, It just – it's not necessary. Yeah, and it's like – I was just thinking, we've had basically five commanders – so far in this series, and two of them have been a one and done, including Golden Knot. And it's like, so basically, you have three recurring uh, commanders, 
and I think you could have at least utilized one of them. And say the one that definitely needs to be utilized more is Harlequin. I think he should have been at least in this one or and or the next the next episode. And I think it was it would be fitting too. I mean, you could write it any way you wanted to, but considering Harlequin has been a recurring commander, the fact of the matter is, like we've already said, he hasn't been utilized well, and he also hasn't been in every episode since his debut. This would be a perfect episode where, if you wanted to, since Golden Knot and my, I, I think, is killed in this episode. Yeah, because I know the you could have killed Harlequin here and be done with that. Yeah, because I know. Uh later in this episode towards the end that the castle explodes and I think that that was where Golden Knot was still in there because we never see him uh, get out from the castle after uh, the unicorn uh, people. Oh, we never see him stay yeah. either technically. Right. So. so, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I would like to have been in that room when they were writing this episode and came up with this character and I and like I said I have no idea what the history behind all of this was I would love to know a lot of details um, about it but I would be like because this is going to cost Toei more money because now you got to design a new costume for an actor and it could be a different actor and if that's the case and you're paying someone different or if it's a if it's a, a person who's already working with the series and if you did that then maybe you're already saving money because they might be under contract so you know but i just is golden not necessary no is he unique kind of uh but yeah, I, because they got too many commanders already out there, uh, they should have utilized one of the three for this. And I and like I think both of us are in agreement that this would have been a perfect vehicle for mm. Harlequin because he's been absent for a couple of episodes. Um, you could have written a backstory that the reason why he was gone is because he's here. And then two, because the character has not been utilized appropriately or at least that well and um, doesn't show up in every episode. Or at least as often as Botanist and Fangar, you could have maybe killed him here, like they did with Golden mm -hmm. But you know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. To me, I I probably would have been in that uh, writing room along with you and try to suggest, you know, you know, we've got gotten probably at that point. I would say four commanders so far and i would say since it seems like that you're gonna be uh having this one commander in this episode being a one and done thing i mean you got three recurring commanders so far but yet you haven't utilized one of them and i would say that would be harlequin would you guys think that since it feels like past episodes, you have we haven't utilized them so far. Wouldn't this be a perfect episode to have him exclusively be the main commander in this episode and utilize them and try to create uh, come up with something unique for Harlequin? And that's probably would have been my suggestion to the writers in that one. Yeah. But steering away from this whole main villain, right. you know, golden knot or not, <laughs> and I didn't mean for that to rhyme, actually. That just kind of came out that way. Um, I do really like 
how this episode is written. I would argue that at least up through these first 15 episodes, this is one of the more adult-oriented written episodes because it deals more with the heavy story of a former unicorn agent actually questioning not just Captain Azuma, but even the agency itself. Mm-hmm. Um, because you and I have sort of mildly poked fun at Unicorn over previous episodes as far as saying how incompetent they are with their security and all that. Here, Hunter's actually in a roundabout way questioning some of the things we've and brought up deci- before. Decisions, with yeah. This, with this agency, and on top of that, it deals with the killings of, of a buddy of his from years ago. It deals with human relationships and the complexities of those and the fact that Captain Izuma, being a commander, has sort of a, a different way of thinking because he has to versus um, a Hunter, who is is an underling and is – Basically, his way of of having to live and work is being told what to do instead of making the decisions, even though, yes, a lot of times when we have supervisors, we all think on some level once in a while that maybe some ideas we have are better than theirs, but you follow orders and – you know, he's kind of in that same vein. And I think this is really well written. First of all, I just I, I really have to get all this off my chest. I think it's not only very well written despite the whole golden knot thing. Forget mm-hmm. that. Like just kind of forget that whole discussion. I love how it's written. It is kind of serious throughout most of the episode. Um, I love Hunter. Uh, I love how this character is written. I love the backstory behind it and how he and, and Azuma stories are interwoven. I love the settings. I love wintry settings, and I love the sets that they mm-hmm. build for this. And again, we're getting we're getting good miniature sets as well. And this will continue even in the next episode. And we even got it the last episode. We didn't even bring that up then um, during our pr- uh, discussion the last episode but we get good miniatures and I, and I think we're starting to get more of that gradually as the series progresses yeah. um I love a lot of things about this episode. The castle, the interior is designed beautifully. The castle miniature itself is wonderful. Oh, yeah, the definitely. mountains, the snow. Iganog, I think, is really cool. I love the design of this character. It's kind of goofy with the hoses or whatever that is that shoots the snow. But this uh, kaiju reminds me of a cross between a dinosaur and a prehistoric mammal. Um, I love the story. I love what they did with the settings and the sets and the miniature. I just I love this episode quite a bit. Yeah, and I I also agree with you as far as writing. As far as characters that they develop, a really good backstory was Hunter. It's like he's basically the main focus of this entire episode is him sort of questioning the decisions of Unicorn, which led him to resigning or quitting uh, the force. Yes. And everything. And then obviously running up to the reason why some of those decisions were uh, made. But yeah, it's probably, I would say, by far out of the three episodes, this one is probably the most serious one and probably the most serious one out of the entire series so far when it comes to the writing and as, and as well as a really good backstory. Probably, I would say, the best backstory for a particular character in this entire series so far. Even better 
been a lot of the main uh, protagonists yeah. in this show. Better than even Johnny. Harlequin. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. a given, but. I think it's even better than Johnny's, and I think the most tragic thing about what comes after this episode is that Hunter never returns. Um, this could have been some sort of – sure, you could have had him skip the next one or two episodes, but it would have been great to have him come back in some fashion. He wouldn't necessarily have to come back as a unicorn agent, and in fact, I forgot to mention this in my plot summary. Captain Azuma asked Hunter to come back and be an agent, and he declines. Hunter, that is, and it would have been neat to do that because um, this – like like you just said, this character is very well written. I think Hunter's better written than just about any other character, good or mm-hmm. bad, that we've seen here. Because this episode more or less is about him. It starts off being about Johnny and Jerry infiltrating this gargoyle hideout, and then it quickly becomes about this mysterious guy called Hunter. And most of the episode sort of revolves around his history. Who is this guy really? Um, it's too bad that he doesn't come back because they could have written some interesting stories. And like I said, he wouldn't necessarily have to come back as an agent of Unicorn. He could have been some sort of you know just helping hand or something like that or saying, I will help you, but I don't want to be associated with the agency like sort of X. Like he could be sort of as a – backup or disguise like like a civilian disguise but at the same time be there for them whenever that they need him in a sort of fashion yeah yeah i mean it's just tragic that he doesn't come back because they spent a lot of time fleshing him out and that's more than what can be said of just about any of these other characters and he's just a one and done mm-hmm. but yeah i would at least give props to whoever wrote uh the story for this episode i definitely give them props for this one given a certain supporting character or just a one and done character the best backstory ever written in this entire series even much better than (laughs) the protagonist and the antagonist in this show it's better than the show deserves because the show has proven to be and i and i think and i don't want people to misunderstand me because uh, they they may think i'm i'm bad mouthing the show but let's be honest this is a kid show okay and kid shows in general whether in east or west uh tend to in terms of their stories more times than not um be catered to sort of the lowest common denominator. And as a result, you have hokiness, goofiness, uh, illogical moments, head scratcher moments, etc. And very rarely do you get stuff like this. Now, granted, and we've talked about this numerous times over the 10 years we've been podcasting, that whether it's TV shows or films that we've covered, that in Japan anyways, um, the children are exposed to some heavier material earlier on than kids here in the United States are. And so, yes, something like this may be very familiar to kids growing up in Japan. Over here, you put something like this in a kid's show, some kids I think on some level would be able to understand it, but not entirely. And um, this TV series is really just a 
kind of a goofy monster of the week sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, you know, we've kind of made fun of this show often on over the course of the, the five episodes now that we've been covering it. But we love this series. We've always said how much we love it. And part of the reason why we love it is because it is so goofy. Um, and so strange, too, in terms of the villains and all this other stuff. But it is kind of a very basic heroes versus villains, giant monster versus good giant robot sort of show. There's not a whole lot of depth to it, really. And up until recently, we've been finally getting more depth. And, you, you know, as we've been saying from the start of this discussion, that this kind of block of episodes and maybe X amount of episodes to come – are probably better than what this series started right. off with for the first 12, 13 episodes. And I was saying that the start of the second half here has turned out to be very well so far, even compared well, to the first series. Probably the whole entire first half of the series. And I remember – and again, I don't know all the details because even when I read that booklet here at the start of this retrospective, there wasn't a ton of information as far as some of the specifics, as far as individual names, like writers' names and stuff, who was involved with some of the, the behind-the-scenes stuff. And I remember when we were going through the original Ultraman series, how I said I didn't like the second half of that series as much as the first half because I thought the second half of the series took itself too seriously and made Ultraman look like a jerk more times than it than they than he did in the first right. half of that series. And when I went through it a third time here a couple of years ago, I started liking the second half more than I ever did, but I still didn't like it as much as the first half. And I almost wonder and this is just a theory of mine. I can't prove it. And again, if anybody out there has any actual information, I would love to hear it. But it almost seems like maybe when a certain TV series reaches the halfway marker – excuse me. Maybe there's a changing of the guard. Are there some different people that come in behind the camera? Are there different writers that come in? Different directors? Uh, you know, or, or what happened? You know, what goes on? Are some of these TV shows – when they start – given short production time and then maybe if they're proven successful are they given more time as they I don't know it just because it is sort of night and day and I think you said this earlier with the last episode discussion the the writing here in this whole block anyways is different from what we've seen throughout most of the first 13 episodes mm -hmm. and it does make me wonder one of two things if not both things happen. Either different writers came in or and or more time was given to write and produce these episodes. Mm. Yeah. But uh, besides all the writing and stuff in this episode, just I just want to point out as far as the design of Iganog or Eisler, whichever you want to go about with the name of this monster yeah as you mentioned earlier it's i do like the uh, the design of the suit it's very unique in its own right you don't really see monsters that have these like hoses or whatever you want snouts whatever it is just jutting out from its shoulders or like beside uh the head 
and blown out like this blizzard-like uh, power, blizzard snow-like power, to freeze everything in its path when it releases this sort of power. And it's, I really like the execution of Iganog itself. I think out of the monsters so far, I think this one is probably one of the better executed uh, kaiju uh, in this series. And I also liked uh, the battle itself between uh, it and Giant Robo. And I I forget, uh, you said it was Mega Punched, right? Mega yeah. Punch. And, and I think, too, this is probably... Uh, one of the only monsters that have dealt giant robo a blow the first get around besides I think the the plant uh, the one the other one was the the gargoyle yeah. vine yeah I was just gonna say. I will say though here's the thing I, I love Iganog the thing is is that and I think it might be executed by two men in a suit uh, the, the, the kaiju doesn't move much it moves a little bit when it comes first on set, but then after that, it more or less stays in one place. Mm. There's very little movement of it after it, its initial appearance. But, yeah, definitely. The writing and Iganog, I'd say, is probably one of the good things. Now let's just go in our final thoughts and ratings, then. You go ahead well, here. As I said, uh, the writing in this one is <laughs> really good probably the best uh writing i've seen by far especially when it's focused on one character uh one and done character with a really good backstory there and given him the reason why he is um and all of the uh things that have done been done in the past and as well as uh Golden Knot, very unique <laughs> commander, also a one and done. Um, and then Iganog, one and done. Hunter, one and done. There's a lot of one and done yeah. here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I also like the design of Iganog, uh, the battle between it and uh, Giant Robo. I mean, basically the thing that I like the story and Hunter itself. Uh, yeah, there's really nothing else I can think of on this episode. So I give Iganog the Iceberg Monster at nine and a half out of ten. All right. The appearance of Golden Knot is a head-scratcher, but is part of the fun of this wacky series. Seeing an actual kaiju as Robo's enemy once again is fun. The sets, both miniature and actual, are wonderfully designed. The story is entertaining, and Hunter's story may be the most adult-oriented story this series has encountered up to this point. Another fun episode, to be sure. 10 out of 10. All right, episode 16. The English title is Torozan, an enemy robot. The Japanese title is GR2, the mysterious robot. Jason, which one do you prefer? The English one. <laughs> that is all. <laughs> uh, I prefer the really? Japanese. Um I, I prefer the Japanese just because the, the term mysterious robot um, brings more um, – drama, I guess, to what Torozan can do. Um, I do like the name Torozan better than GR2, 
even though GR2 is kind of cool in of itself. But I think the phrase an enemy robot is kind of a no-duh moment because it's just like – you know, most of these episodes are named after the enemy robot or monster of the week. Um, you know, so of course, you know, you have the name of the villain monster or robot. It's going to be an enemy. So I thought the phrase an enemy robot was just kind of duh. Well, for me, it just comes <laughs> down to the name of the monster. So specifically, this. Torozon's cool. This I one's like a robot. That. So. Toros on it gives like a like sort of a character more of a personality just the way it looks to me it it sort of resembles that traditional kind of Japanese samurai uh, look and feel to uh, the robot so at least Toros on gives that more character or a uh, personality in a way just how mm-hmm. it looks. All right, so here's a plot overview of Torozon. Unicorn Switzerland is attacked by Dr. Snake and Torozon. Numerous other unicorn headquarters across the globe are also destroyed. Benny Sabola, who runs the unicorn radar tower, and his children are worried about his unconscious wife. Dr. Snake blackmails him to cooperate with his devious plans or he will place his children into a coma as well. Torozan begins his assault on the radar tower. Johnny calls for Robo. After the battle, Torozan mysteriously disappears. Sebola goes back to the radar and says to his employees he will run the radar alone. He gasses them, allowing Dr. Snake and other gargoyle agents to enter the tower. Dr. Snake intends to have Torozan's controls in the tower and the radar will – excuse me. Let me just start that whole one again. Dr. Snake intends to have Torozan's controls in the tower, and the radar will send out the signal to Torozan. That way, as Torozan attacks Tokyo, Unicorn won't realize its controls are miles away in the radar tower. Johnny and Mari go to visit the Cebolas, or Cebolas, excuse me, but notice they are being guarded by gargoyle agents. They free them and seek shelter as Torozan begins attacking Tokyo. Robo arrives to combat it. Cebola, Jerry, and the other radar tower men overtake the tower. Jerry destroys the Torozan controls, and both men shoot Dr. Snake to death. Robo sends Torozan packing with its triangle missile located on its chest. All right, so first thing I notice, and again, another wacky funny thing here is, I thought it was funny how Unicorn Switzerland is run by Japanese. (laughs) Well, not only that, but then again, we've got another episode back-to-back with a one-and-done commander, this time in Dr. Snake. (laughs) I like this character's design. Uh, the the metallic band with the eye patch that all of it looks like it's been damaged to some extent. The weird gremlin type of ear, the pointy nose, and like the the scaly like sort half of a two face esque scar or something like that. Yeah, and his laugh in the English dub, he has a funny maniacal like cackle yeah. type of laugh. And it's well, creepy. in voice as well. But evil. (laughs) 
Are you going to go? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was oh, waiting yeah, on you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks. You may have to edit that out of the audio podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I really love this character. And again, it's it's unfortunate that this character is one and done, even though already we talked about uh, there are already three uh, ongoing commanders. Harlequin should have been dead. Let's just let's just say it. We've sort of you know tiptoed around it. Let's just come out and say it. Harlequin should have been dead like three or four episodes ago. Let's kill him, bring in Dr. Snake as his replacement. Because Dr. Snake here, just in his one and only episode, showed more potential than even Harlequin did in his debut episode. And that was the best Harlequin was ever showcased. Mm -hmm. And that's saying something. If Dr. Snake in his one and done episode outperformed Harlequin in his debut episode, what does that say about that particular character? I mean... You know, the, the, the results speak for themselves. Well, for me, um, I would say this. If if you wanted to at least keep Dr. Snake in this, I was said that in the previous episode, uh, replace Golden Knot with Harlequin. I probably would have said um, that we could have used that opportunity to kill off Harlequin, have him be in that castle where it exploded towards the end of the episode and then this is when the time where you can have Dr. Snake come in and be the one of the recurring uh, commanders for this show. And in fact, Let's be. Let, let's actually correct that. He's actually not a commander. They said he was the lead gargoyle scientist, but he might as well be a commander because he had some men working under him. Mm-hmm. So, but that's what they said. And then it, it just also felt like, and just the way that he did things leading up to the end of the episode where he is eventually killed off by Cibola and I think Jerry that um, he felt just as competent or confident in himself what he was doing along with Fangar. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of similarities between Dr. Snake and Fangar. I mean, both... Both are weird looking, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they both they both have wonderful plans. The, the only unfortunate thing is that his underlings, Doctor Snake's underlings, failed him, and as a result, exposed him to gunfire. And um, you know, I guess you could argue that maybe that makes Fangar better because he put himself in put himself in situations to succeed more than Doctor Snake, but Doctor. Snake wasn't that far off. I mean, he had the controls ready. Torozan was attacking Tokyo. And the only thing is that Jerry, uh, Sebola, well, Sebola was already free. He helped Jerry and the other uh, radar tower guys get freed. Um, You know, they just were outmanned. And that, you know, that led to to his demise. Um, But yeah, Dr. Snake is, is incredibly competent. He destroyed. How many headquarters? Four or five ep- uh, headquarters at least. Yeah, they quite were a few of them. Uh, he he destroyed a handful of them, and Japan was next. And so, yeah, I mean that's something Fangar technically has yeah, done. And I would say that when it comes to his underlings leading up to his demise in this, the one downside 
is that it would have been nice that uh, if his underlings had any weapons, because it seemed like when Cibola and uh, Jerry gained the upper hand leading up to Dr. Snake's demise, is that most of his underlings did seem like that they didn't even have any weapon on hand at all. They those guys seem more incompetent here. And these are just regular gargoyle agents. You would have thought that uh, Dr. Snake should have told them be on the guard, be on the guard, be on the lookout and make sure you have a weapon on you at all times, especially um, having me protected too when controlling uh, Toro's on. And that should go without even Mm -hmm. saying, um, because this is Gargoyle. This is an organization that is run by a so-called really uh, all-powerful alien. Space emperor. And (laughs) – yeah, and you know we've seen in the past how – they're usually armed to the teeth. I mean, for crying out loud, in the first episode we talked about in this podcast, they sent a battalion of t- tanks at the Tylon uh, Unicorn headquarters. And here it just seems like for whatever strange reason, either they got cocky um, or what, they just seemed – that the agents anyways seemed incompetent Or they just got here. dumb for <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> They took a dumb pill for a week. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Let's talk about Toro's on here. I love this robot. This robot will come back at least one more time in this series. Uh, I love its design. I love the angry-looking uh, face it has. Um, like you said, it kind of comes off like a samurai in some respects. I do see uh, elements of that here and there. Um, I, I just love it, and I love the fact we get two battles with it between – uh, Robo in itself here. This is a very formidable opponent for Robo. Um, I really enjoy this enemy. This is really, I think, the only robot, unless we come up to something later as we go along, that I think is the only robot that I really fall in love with in this series. Yeah, and it sort of reminds me of – it sort of has that – a little bit of a similar design to one of the other – um, characters that I know of, and it's it came up with one of the like the first episode of one series that uh, showing over at G Fest every other year, like during the night or in the morning. It, it has like these Spectrum. No, it has. I think like the five, oh, I like know the what five people with uh, um, with like these different colored. Uh, There's three. Yeah, three with uh, different colored uh, motorcycle helmets. It's it's die die something. Uh, yeah, I know what you're about, the stop or motion something one. of the sort, and they have like these stop motion like characters and stuff. It's yeah, it sort of has that similar look and or feel to one of those uh, antagon uh, one of those antagonists. That came up with in that one, that first episode, but yeah, I really dig the the look the or the the design of Torozan, and I think it ha- it has that competence or the confidence, even though it's controlled by uh, Doctor Snake, to 
go after a uh, giant robo and it's at least glad to hear that he's going to be coming in at least one more time in this series here which even though i've watched this recently and sort of forgot that he comes in twice but yeah um i really like toro's on in this yeah, I, I just I really love its uniqueness. The fact that the 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 cranial uh, spike detaches and flies around separately, but then it's able to reproduce it if it if if one is destroyed or lost. Um, it's really neat, and just even in hand to hand combat, it, it's very effective. Um, and again, we must talk about great miniature sets once again. Um, we get that towards the end with some of the destruction of Tokyo. We get some interesting blue screen um, effects that, yeah, they kind of you can kind of tell their their effects, but they're not awful, awful. But still, in terms of miniature settings, still really good. Uh, here. I would say the blue screen is probably the only downfall in this. Although uh, the one blue screen scene that we get in this episode that I think is probably the best one is where they had that tall skyscraper that's uh, behind uh, the National Diet building there where it explodes. That was obvious. But then as far as the miniatures, they did typically reuse the footage where the the ground uh, splits up right in front of the Tokyo station there because we did get that in one of the previous episodes that we've uh, reviewed. I think it was the one with uh, that uh, I think the one that was spitting out saying it, I think it was uh, Tyrox Liger, the one that was uh, spitting no, out I get, I didn't uh, catch sand that. or anything. It, it was basically uh, the reused or rehashed uh, footage from that episode. That's good. I, I didn't yeah. catch that. <laughs> so, yeah. I just want to bring up something funny. I, I want to say Robo is a cheap fighter because at one point during its final battle, it smacked Toro's on in the groin to render it momentarily <laughs> harmless. Even though it's a robot. It, it's plain as day. Boom, smacks in the groin and Toro's on's like... <laughs> Even though it's a robot, it shouldn't feel anything at all. <laughs> Apparently it does. <laughs> and the missile triangle. Oh, boy. <laughs> Another thing I forgot... This is about as cheap as Gamera opening opening up its shell to defeat Legion at the end of Gamera like- 2. I had forgotten about that, and I'm like, that is cheap. It's, on the one hand, it's kind of cool, but on the other hand, I'm like, no, that's cheap. <laughs> I also liked how it just basically pushes uh, Torozon back into the earth uh, right at the end of the episode. And you would think, too, that... Horizon should have just went like this and just have that <laughs> triangle just fly by. <laughs> he got punched in the groin, dude. <laughs> Do you think you would have enough to be like, oh? <laughs> but yeah, it's a robot. <laughs> Apparently he felt it, though. <laughs> or, or it felt it. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Otherwise, I thought we'd go into final thoughts and a rating here. No, I think we should just uh, head straight into our final thoughts. 
All right. Dr. Snake is another gargoyle commander I had totally forgotten about until seeing this episode. The miniature sets have become wonderfully more elaborate and plentiful in recent episodes, and it has made for a more entertaining experience over the recent batch of episodes. Torozan is a capable robot foe, and Dr. Snake is nerdish evil with his goofy cackle and unique appearance. I was shocked to see him killed so soon, but with Botanus and Fangar still loose, having another commander would be too much to keep track of for the moment. The battles are fun and character fights are entertaining as well. This episode ends this podcast with another strong outing. 10 out of 10. Yeah, for me, um, another another good episode with uh, good writing in this one. Um, and as far as Doctor Doctor Snake, I think I would have preferred him to be, to have been a recurring commander. And as I mentioned earlier, probably could have used the previous episode to at least utilize Doc, uh, Harlequin and probably uh, taken the opportunity to at least kill him off. Because then now you probably have another good, competent commander in Doctor Snake along with uh, Vangar and Botanus in this one. But yeah, unfortunately, he's just a one-and-done villain in this uh, episode or series, which I think it probably would have been great to have him uh, reoccur. But other than that, uh, as far as Torozan, really like the design, the execution of this uh, robot or a giant robot. Uh... Yeah, just another good episode with good writing. Unfortunately, uh, killed off Dr. Snake really too soon in this one. It would have been nice to have him in at least maybe a few more episodes down the road. But for episode 16, Torozan, uh, an enemy robot, I would give this one a 9 out of 10. All right, and with that said, Jason... um do you want to do our next podcast on November 14th and then we can cover four Johnny Sacco episodes? You, you read my one. mind as far as the uh, the amount of episodes that we should do. Because <laughs> then the, at least that way it would finish out uh, the third disc and then get us into the final disc of uh, this series. Well, yeah, and like we had talked about it, couple weeks ago we're we're actually by taking this route we'll be done in the first part of december uh before we end out the year with our typical uh, year-end episode which usually is the smorgasbord of kaiju related topics um but yeah because typically because for example uh, otherwise november 7th would have been our regular episode i always clean our house the first saturday of each new month it takes me like six hours to do, and I'm exhausted, and I don't want to do a podcast then. And I just figure, let's just wait, and then we'll just do one extra episode, and then that'll put us in position that by the first part of December, we'll be done with Johnny Sacco. Yeah, and I know, I don't know if you want to talk about it right now or just after when we get done here as far as what we're planning on doing once we get done with uh, Johnny Sacco so I can take the time to acquire some of these uh, said films or uh, shows. Let's do it off air Uh, because I could do it. I personally can go anyway. I got a couple of of opinions on it. 
but uh, I don't want us to, to waste people's time All right. on it. Sounds good. So uh, before we uh, end this week's uh, episode, I just want to touch upon again as far as our uh, audio and streaming networks uh, for our podcast if you like listening to the audio version of our podcast you can find us over at uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts uh, iHeartRadio Spotify or TuneIn and as far as our uh, streaming networks you can find us at YouTube, Twitch, Facebook Live, uh, Periscope and DLive and as far as our social uh, media, you can like and subscribe to us on these uh, following social media. Uh, search for Daikaiju Network, and you can find us at our own website. Uh, just find us over at daikaijunetwork.com. So if you have anything All else, right. uh, we can uh, close out. Just thank you so much, guys, for listening and or watching, and we will see you here in a few weeks when we do episodes 17 through 20. Yep, yep, That's, that sounds uh, good. So uh, thanks for listening, guys, and thanks for watching. Uh, By the way, I just want to quick add a quick note because, uh, my gosh, the end of December will be here before you know it. If there are any topics you guys want us to cover for our year-end episode, please let us know. Um, you can. The best way to really get a hold of us is through our Facebook page. Um, send you know either post something on our wall or send us a, a message. Um, that would be the best way of getting in contact with us, and that way we know we actually mm-hmm. see it. Uh, unfortunately, we tend to get quite a bit of spam in our uh, Gmail account, uh, and it's really hard to just kind of sift through that stuff. But um, that's the best way to get a hold of us. Anything you want us to talk about or whatever, feel free to, to leave some suggestions there and on And then, Facebook. of course, I've got our Twitter on my phone so I can at least get notifications of when you add us or mention us on uh, Twitter there. So you can also – uh, sort of contact us through there as well, uh, publicly or privately there. So, um, other than that, uh, thanks for watching, and we will see you guys in a few weeks. Yep, take care. See you, everyone.